The R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Well, today's Solutionist Thinker was born 50 years ago in Pretoria. His biggest claim to fame, for a while at least, was that he was at nursery school with Elon Musk. He used to go for family holidays at a wine farm in Stellenbosch, which his family later sold. He liked it so much, though, that he bought it back after a short career in banking. He spent about 20 years climbing the corporate ladder and eventually retired at the ripe old age of about 45. His name is Michael Jordan. A lot of people think innovation is about ideas. It's not about ideas. The challenges we have in South Africa is not that we're short of ideas how to solve any of the problems. It's execution. And uh, I just wish there would be more people who enjoy execution, who think they can start businesses out of it. I think it should be more highly rewarded in business and in government. I'm Bruce Whitfield, and you are listening to Solutionist Thinking, brought to you by RMB. Do you believe, Michael, you're down that Elon Musk goes to dinner parties and say... I was once at school with the chief executive of the world's most innovative bank, and he inspired me to do my musky things. I read his book, um, and I would recommend it to a lot of people. It's quite inspirational, but it's also sad from a South African perspective. I believe he's, he's turned his back on his country of origin, and he's really not focused on us, and he is most definitely not focused on his, his old nursery school copy. He didn't mention you once, did he? <laughs> No, he hasn't. Not in the book, and I doubt that he ever will. You got over Pretoria, though, fairly early, and you did your senior schooling in the Western Cape. You went to the famous Paul Roos Gymnasium. It's a tough school. It's a, a rugabugger school. I always thought the world was bigger than Pretoria. South Africa was bigger than Pretoria, and for me it was nice to move on. The choice of the school had something to do with the farm that you mentioned. My grandparents had lived there, and I was able at least on Sundays to go and visit them. But it was a form of breaking away. Um, it's a very rugby-focused school. I didn't play rugby. I had the terrible misfortune of playing hockey. I mean, it was an A-team, and we did quite well. But um, it wasn't a sport that girls came to watch on Saturday. So, you know, it wasn't as motivating. But fortunately, it's quite an open, liberal-minded school. It's it's bilingual, um, so two languages. And you could do everything from debating to you know learning how to develop photographs. But I think the really cool thing was that, that the step from school to university was so easy. It was the same town. It had the same kind of school colors, um, and it was quite an easy migration. And I have to say, for me, that was uh, where life really began, was at varsity. School far more restricted. Yes. Uh, but by the time you got to university, did you have a career path in mind? Or did you just go, like many people who go to Stellenbosch, to find a spouse? <laughs> I somehow always knew that I liked banking. Now, I didn't fully know what that meant, but I liked the whole esoteric nature of it. And I felt that banking and finance was at the center of the world. That hardly a political event could happen in South America or in northern Russia without it. It's having some effect on markets and affecting our daily lives, the butterfly effect. So I always knew I wanted to do it, didn't quite know what it was. So that was my move into varsity. But I think it was the lack of rules. I've always been somewhat uncomfortable with very, very strict rules. At the hostel where I spent my high school, we had to study for three and a quarter hours every single day. And for me, that was a terrible thing. I thought you should have an incentive. For example, if your homework is done, then you should be able to go and play. Um, far rather than having a three-hour rule, what if you do your homework within one hour? And that's something that stayed with me all my life is these uh, very, very strict rules that we have. 
sometimes just don't make sense. Rather create incentives for people to do the job better, to do it, do it faster. And that's what varsity was like. There was no one watching over you. Some people couldn't thrive in that environment. Many didn't make it. Um, but when you realize that it's your responsibility to do well, that's quite a liberating uh, moment. And that's what happened to me at varsity. It is interesting, though, how you haven't rebelled against rules at all. You're a believer in rules, no doubt. But you have created through your life a flexibility to the rules that a lot of people would struggle with. There's something about principles that are better than rules. And sometimes you can use those principles to derive good rules. So, for example, if you you know that if you drive very fast, it's more dangerous. But even the rule, let's say a speed limit of 120 k's an hour, that doesn't make sense if there are terrible weather conditions then. That should be a lower limit. But if it's maybe in the middle of the day and there are no other cars there, you could argue that 120 may just be, um, you know, too low a limit again. Um, so the whole point is to reflect about life, about the principles. You may, for example, in banking have a rule that seeks to limit risk behavior. But that, that rule, again, may be too high or too low based on the principles. So there's something to be said for first principle thinking in everything in life and certainly in business when challenging norms. Listeners to this podcast will accept what you say without any hesitation. Have you ever tried that logic on a traffic cop? <laughs> no, no, exactly. That's one of those other things. The first principle there is just, you know, pay the fine and, and move on with life. Don't waste your time. Also, don't get upset. A whole lot of people f- feel that that's an opportunity to fight with somebody. He or she's just doing their job. If you've done something wrong, pay the fine, move on. I recall going up to the top floors of that big blue glass building, the RMB building in Santon in Johannesburg, um, and going there for a meeting and being left alone with the glorious art collections and everything else and wondering how I could stuff one of the big uh, <laughs> paintings under my, under my jacket. And on the table was a book that said, the RMB rule book. And I opened it up and it was a series of blank pages. And that struck me in that moment, probably 15 years ago, that this was a place where latitude was not only encouraged but required. I think in practice, of course, there are rules. But it was symbolic. And it obviously had something to do with RMB's payoff line, which is traditional values and innovative ideas. And it was just basically saying, don't take any of these rules for granted. Do they make sense to you? I suppose most of the rules that constrain us are the ones that we make for ourselves. If you say there's a rule that says I can't behave in this way or I can't do this or I'm not qualified enough to do that, the most empowering thing usually doesn't have to do with the rules that others set for you. It's the rules that you don't even know about that you set for yourself. What was the riddle you had to solve to get into the building for an interview for the job at RMB? Archie and Ben were two professional golfers and keen rivals. And one day while playing a game, Archie hit a great shot and Ben added 10 to his score. And then Ben hit a great shot and won the game. And the question was why these two golfers uh, would compete in that game. What is the answer? Save me the trouble. <laughs> it turned out that these two golfers were actually playing tennis. And uh, <laughs> I submitted my CV with an answer to this riddle. And you know, I went through quite a rigorous interview process, eventually landing a job as a, a trainee, as they called it, the class of program, which once again was quite incredible being exposed to all the different parts of merchant banking, plus this culture that we spoke about earlier, which is more challenging, more principle-based, uh, more dynamic, and looking for a lot of innovation, which were things 
I didn't see in, in Europe. And in a broader sense, I may say, is one of the big challenges for Europe is now to innovate more. At what point did you think, that's the job I want? I want to be chief executive of FNB. I, I don't think ever. That wasn't really my goal. My goal was to excel in something that I was passionate about, which was financial services, and to, to be on top of my game. Managing people um, is something that only really came later in life where I realized that something that gives me a kick is if other people do well. You shouldn't really be a manager or a leader or a CEO if you don't also have that passion for people and people development. You've always said that you like to hire people who are smarter than you at what they do, specialists in what they do. Let them do brilliantly at that. You know, it's not just specialists. It's just generally you want to work with people that kind of amaze you, that every now and then come up with thoughts that you haven't thought of or new ways of doing it. So finding people who are better than you, just full stop. You know, it doesn't even have to be in their specialization. As a young CEO, I was very uncertain of myself. For me, it was as big a question of whether they were going to accept me as the new boss as it was uh, maybe the other way around. You, you know, were 35 years old when and, you took and on that job. young, and it was, you know, very un- unsure of myself, um, and a bit like that king um, who didn't have clothes on, you know, and if somebody had said boo, you know, I may have run away. So there were a couple of important events where eventually – I think it dawned on me that the bottom line here is trust and intent. If you show good intent towards other people and so on, it, it's amazing what can happen. So it was a journey. I asked the new team to give me a chance and said I would give them a chance. And then over time, there were some people who left and new people who came along. There was no preconceived idea of who would be on the bus and off the bus. At what point do you get the self-confidence to take the job incredibly seriously Take the business incredibly seriously, but not take yourself so seriously. That happens over time. In fact, now I can look at the world and I can look at other leaders and I can look at politicians and you can clearly see when they take themselves too seriously. And, you know, it's important for them to, I don't know, have their picture in the paper for their decision to be the right one. Where that is not the test. The test is really that the right things happen for the business, that you channel your entire ambition into the, the job that you want to do. I can admit that at the beginning, if something good had happened to the bank uh, that I ran, I was pretty keen that my bosses and the board identify that with me being the leader. And only later on did I realize that that's actually pretty bad behavior because what you should do is you should give the credit to the people who really made it happen. You know, always give the credit away. And when something goes wrong, then take the blame, even though you may not be to blame, which obviously does take confidence. Did you, when you started as CEO of FMB, say, I'm giving it 10 years at the age of 45, no matter what I'm leaving? I definitely think that there is a time to make your impact and then there's a time to go. It's the reason why term limits are built into some constitutions. There's a lot of empirical evidence that the performance of CEOs actually deteriorate after a certain while. And the reasons for that is obvious. You surround yourself with people that you're comfortable with. You start forgiving them their mistakes. You start taking yourself too seriously. The ego starts becoming more important. Of course, there are exceptions to this rule. I'll, I'll give you that. But as a rule, I think you come in, you need a certain amount of time to make your mark, but then it's also time to hand over to the next generation. So it was very clear for me that 10 years was going to be the maximum. And suddenly you went very quiet. You went to the family farm at Bartony. This was the farm where you'd visited as a school kid, your grandparents. 
you bought it back yes. and then said about redeveloping it and subsequently removing all of the alien vegetation and restoring it to its former glory. Of course, all the other alien vegetation except the vines. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're no longer alien in Stalingrad. <laughs> your, your, your good friend, your, your neighbor, G.T. Ferreira, once very famously described wine farming as having remarkable ROE. And he wasn't referring to return on equity. On equity. Referring to the good old return on ego. Gigi's always been a funny guy, and I thought it was just a joke. It was quite tough for me and for my wife, Rose, who really is in charge of the farm and has done all the development, to find out that it's actually um, a bittersweet joke. It really is true. We do live a wonderful lifestyle on a wine farm, but it certainly isn't for the faint-hearted. It's certainly not commercially minded. And my only tip to you, Bruce, and to anyone who's listening is, Drink the stuff. Don't try and produce it. <laughs> Has it been a good year? We've had big uh, water shortage, mm-hmm. rain shortage in the Western Cape. Estimates are that the overall crop is down 15 to 20%. For us, it has been less of an issue because we try and produce the highest quality grapes. So the volume is not the big issue. It's the quality, not the quantity. And we've taken out 16 hectares of alien plants and even 20% of our own uh, vineyards because they also need to be replanted from year to year. So, yes, it's been a good year. It's Every year it gets a little bit better. Some of it is science, some of it is art, but the small little changes you make in the vineyard, in the soil, in the harvesting, in the winemaking process and so on, year after year you just get incrementally better. A bit like business, uh, I would say it just takes a bit longer in the case of wine. But you're getting springs coming out of the ground which probably haven't come out of the ground for a hundred years, courtesy of bluegum trees and things like that. Now, Bruce, when you speak about return on ego, I, I must say this small little thing that you refer to that we, we chopped down 16 hectares of bluegums and within a week a small stream that had been there many, many decades before reemerged. That's the type of thing that gives immense joy. It's difficult to explain, but you know, a return to nature and the return to how it was and actually should be. I mean, we've got this wonderful Feinbos in the Western Cape. Um, I've nearly become obsessed with uh, getting out all those alien plants and returning it to nature. One can walk through the streets of Stellenbosch and people uh, will come up to me and introduce themselves to me and say, I'm a partner of Michael's. <laughs> how many businesses... Over the last five years since you retired from a formal day job, have you taken stakes in? So I'm, I'm involved in just over 21 of them, and there are always a, a few in the pipeline still. Uh, sadly, I've come more or less to the end of my own financial capacity to fund any more businesses, so I, I now need to review. Either I need to really focus on the existing portfolio and wait until these little seeds become saplings, become big trees, and, and you can harvest from them, or maybe look at other opportunities every now and then they evidence themselves. From artisanal chocolate, the Villiers chocolate, to very high-tech artificial intelligence to outperform the markets. That's numerical investing. Um, there's a bank that um, we hope to launch by the end of this year. There's even a, a new mobile operator that will come into being uh, before the end of June. So um, they all try and solve problems in South Africa. Now, I, this I did not know when I set out to do this. I just had a passion for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. I like people with energy. But it turned out, if I look at my investment track record, that I didn't just back people and teams with good ideas. Those ideas most often related to solving problems in yeah. South Africa. So that's another passion of mine is looking at problems that you see all over the world um, and in South Africa and saying, how can we turn that problem into something that is actually a business opportunity where you know, somebody can make a sustainable investment, but in the process we do good for South Africa as well. 
at the age of 45, you are living the dream. You have earned enough money. You have options in the bank. And you could simply have literally banked the money, offshored the money, invested it elsewhere, and taken a stipend to ensure that the farm could keep on going, ride your mountain bike, create a new gin, um, play with the flavor <laughs> profiles of your wine. But the vast majority of people, they would think, boy, that is an ideal life. So there's so many answers to this or so many angles to this. The first one I'd just like to point out is the concept of enough. You know, what is enough? When do you have enough? When do you have money? Um, and I think one of the unfortunate byproducts of our capitalist society is there's this perception that the more and more money you make, the happier and happier you'll be. That's definitely not my observation. I don't think that's the case. We all need a certain amount to feel comfortable and have a roof over our heads and to look after our kids and maybe make sure they've got a good education. But after that, um, just running after more and more money doesn't make you happier. Um, so it's important at some stage in that cycle to start looking after meaning, um, you know, what it is that you want to do, what gives you real joy. So, you know, that was kind of one one stage uh, difference for me. Um, the, the other one is my belief that you, how good you are, the type of person you are, how you define yourself. You can't define yourself on something you did too long ago. Um, you have to define yourself based on what you do every single day. Are you a nice person every single day? Are you contributing? Are you making life a little bit better? So it really gives me joy if I can invest in a startup, in a, you know, entrepreneur, somebody with energy, and they create a business that solves a real problem, you know, quite apart from the fact that that's hopefully financially successful. It, it's the, the joy that you would get out of watching a good movie or solving a puzzle or reading a good book. I, I get it out of um, these startups. So there's, and say a selfish element in all of it but I think that's okay as long as the end result is good how have you identified the people you have backed I went into this quite naively um, not knowing what would happen kind of said I'm interested in entrepreneurship and immediately got between 10 and 50 applications a day so I've, I've partnered with Angel Hub who helped me filter these applications and we do a whole lot of research and we, you end up doing maybe one in a hundred, maybe one in a thousand. There really is a massive need out there for more angel or, or venture type investing. Because a lot of people think innovation is about ideas. It's not about ideas. The challenges we have in South Africa is not that we're short of ideas how to solve any of the problems. It's execution. I just you know, wish there would be more people who enjoy execution, um, who think they can start businesses out of it. I think it should be more highly rewarded in business and in government. Your two biggest projects, and that is Bank Zero. You've got ex-FNB colleagues teamed up with you there. But Rain is the one that many people are going to relate to because people are cross with their cell phone networks. They're cross with the price of data. They want to have some real competition. In there, you've partnered again with people with whom you've worked for a long time. Yes. You and Paul Harris have been the principal partners in that particular business. And to show how serious you are about it, you then poached ex-Outsure and CEO Willem Roos to come and run the Rain business. I mean, that's sending a quite a serious signal to the incumbents. Paul has kind of got a completely new lease of life um, in, in terms of telecommunications. I do recall from when I worked for me, always loved telecommunications and uh, there are actually many generic similarities with financial services, both being intangible products. Um, 
So, so he's deeply, deeply involved. Willem, I, I resist the word poach, but he definitely also got enthused as a shareholder. Um, and I think that the big penny was that dropped for him is he said, well, I sell short-term insurance, but you have to convince people to buy it. But here's a product data that everybody just wants more of. It's growing 60% a year compound in the world. Anyway, he got excited about that. So, yes, we want to do something different. Entering as a new business, you start with a clean sheet of paper, and particularly when it comes to pricing, you don't have to adhere to market norms like bundles or out of bundle or expiry. You know, those are just things that when you start afresh, uh, don't make sense. Of course, we'll have our unique uh, disadvantages. It takes a lot of capital to roll out a nationwide network, which we won't have, probably based on the cities in South Africa. But even so, it'll cover a lot of the population. And you're quite right. We think we'll, we'll tap into something there, which is that people are upset with the high fees they pay for mobile data. But maybe more importantly, to come back to your theme of solving problems, is m- uh, bandwidth and access to the Internet is the way that modern economies grow. And if we get that right, um, we can grow faster as a country, create more jobs. We need that. It'll be better for entertainment. It'll be better for education in the country. So there's a whole social satisfaction that also comes out of the digital dividend. And you've got Patrice Motsepe investing in you. That's right. And that's kind of cool that we are seeing reinvestment in the South African economy. A lot of people have been very battered and bruised politically, socially, economically over the last decade. Um, and do you get a sense of renewed vigor and enthusiasm, albeit fairly tentative? So on the, on the Patrice Motsepe and ARK investment, we're very mm. proud to have them as co shelders and have, have a BE shelling of over 40%. I believe that would be the most uh, empowered telco in South Africa. Yes, I do get that sense of renewed vigor. I think underlying all of this and all the doubts and the people who can point out all the problems is an entrepreneurial class that just see opportunities everywhere and want to solve all the problems. Maybe the big question that I hope we solve quickly is the uncertainty about land redistribution, which incidentally I I favor. I think there is a lot of land that is really fallow and available if we can just activate it properly. And this includes everything from tribal lands to government-owned lands to, to land in urban areas. You, you've I think you've long made is. the point that to give people title deeds to their own homes yes. is the most empowering action any government Absolutely. could take. The, the, it's a security of tenure, really. There are many millions of people who have lived on their piece of land for a very, very long time, but they have no security of tenure. And it's absolutely proven if you can turn that into a title deed, um, the property gets improved. It gives people access to, to capital. Uh, it allows formal free movement if they sell that property. Some people just you know, stay in place because they know that they're going to lose it if they move. So we absolutely need to reform land. But I think the uncertainty right now is maybe the one thing that is dampening a little bit of the ramaphoria that we've, that we've seen. However, if I think where we could have been, the alternative would have been so much worse that I can just encourage South Africans to say, stop, you know, pointing out all the problems, get involved about it yourself, do something about it. It's, first of all, it's exhilarating. But secondly, you, you feel good about yourself and you feel um, you're doing something meaningful by making a contribution to the South African economy. And that has its own rewards. There were those dreadful little plastic things that people used to put on their desks in the 1980s that they used to buy from Cardi's. You don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. <laughs> those sorts of things. Uh, maybe we could make one that says uh, like a bumper sticker, bring those back. Yeah. You don't have to be mad to invest here. But it helps. <laughs> I, I don't think you have to be mad to invest. I think the entrepreneurs um, that have shown that you can do incredible things. If you think, I don't know, the schooling system isn't good enough, start 
Caro and um, you know, some people are getting a, a very good schooling there and are willing to pay for it. And you can do it for electricity. You, you know, you can either, you know, get upset about ESCOM and the fees and the coal that they're burning. We can get into solar. You know, there's a completely new greenfield type of business opportunity and so on and so on. So, um, fortune favors the brave. I'd say it helps if you're brave, not mad. Michael, you're done. Thank you very much indeed. R&B, solutionist thinking. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za.